Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. So I want to speak to you today some lessons from the life of David. David is one of the, uh, I think, one of the great heroes of the Bible, and I find him such an attractive person. And so I want to share with you the word. So if you have a Bible, I'm speaking, first of all, from 2 Samuel chapter 23. The heading in the NIV says David's last words. It's probably not the very last thing he said, but it's the last sort of poetic testimony, or it's like something he wrote, something he said and was written down. It's like one of the Psalms. And, uh, and I thought, let's just look at the end of his life, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of the story, okay? So these are very beautiful verses. So from verse 1, these are the last words of David. The inspired utterance, another translation says an oracle, something inspired by the Holy Spirit. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob. Israel's singer of songs. He is the man who gave us about half of the book of Psalms. And uh, the story begins really with, look at that, about David wanting a psalmist, somebody who could play the harp, and that's how he comes into the palace. And he's this amazing worshiper, Israel's singer of songs. Another version says, Israel's beloved singer. Another version says, the hero of Israel's songs. Then verse 2 says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And so this man, David, we're going to look at his life and some of the struggles and troubles he went through. But there is a verse in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 30, which speaks of David. And I think it's Peter preaching, and he says, but he was a prophet. This man, David, who was the greatest king of Israel, under his reign, there was never another time quite like the reign of David. He was also a prophet. And so God's prophetic word came through David, and God spoke both to him and through him. So verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel, the, the rock of Israel, said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And you know, sometimes people are afraid of leadership. Sometimes people are afraid of authority. But when God gives us leadership, especially in the church, and when leaders are leading uh, people in righteousness, when they are ruling in the fear of God, then leadership and authority is a huge blessing. And so when leaders are godly people who fear the Lord, leading in the fear of God, leadership is a wonderful thing and something to be embraced. And um, so we need not be afraid Um, You're in a place today where the leaders fear God and and are leading in righteousness. But the thing that struck me as I was meditating on this passage is David says, the God of Israel, the the God of Israel, verse 3, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, there was a time when God said, David, I've got a word for you. And I think it was probably, we don't know, but probably at the beginning of his reign as king. Now, he eventually reigned over Israel for 40 years. And I I would imagine right at the beginning, David says, there was a word from God for me. You know, God wants to speak to each one of us in a personal way. And this was the word that God gave him. He says, God spoke to me. And God said, when one rules over people in righteousness. David, listen to this. 
When, one, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. In other words, God was saying, David, if you will rule in righteousness, if you will rule in the fear of God, your, your reign will be such a blessing to people. And I believe this was, a, this was a word that meant so much to David. I believe it's a word that he carried through his life. I believe it was a word that shaped uh, his life and it shaped his calling to be king. And so the whole, I think this is something that sustained him and it kept him on course. And you know, friends, it's a wonderful thing. God can speak to us. He can speak to each of our hearts. I believe that each one of us can hear God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. And so if you're a believer, you can hear God. You can listen for the voice of God. And God can give us a word that will guide us and sustain us and through the dark moments empower us. And I believe this was a word from God for David. And it kept him steady. And he lived like this. And at the end of his life, he could celebrate a life that had been lived uh, in the fear of God. And he had, he had reigned in righteousness. And so it's a beautiful thing when God gives us a word and I believe he wants to do, to do that for all of us, to give us a word that will shape our lives and keep us on track. And at the end, we too can be a great blessing. So I think that David at the end of his life could say this, I have ruled over God's people in righteousness. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, by the word of God, by his rhema word to me, I have done this. I have ruled over people in righteousness. I've ruled in the fear of God. I have been like the brightness after rain, and it's all by the grace of God. Then I, I love this person of David. So some months back, I preached a series on the life of David um, in the church that I lead. And um, just love this figure of David. Is he attractive to you? When you think of David, uh, uh, to me, he's such an attractive figure. But you know what the scripture says about him? The greatest commendation of David is what God says. And in the New Testament, Acts 13, verse 36 I think it's um, Paul preaching, and he says, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. So at the end of his life, David could say, I have reigned in righteousness, I have, I have I've led in the fear of God, and I've served the purpose of God in my generation. And friends, I want to say today that you and I have that opportunity. Will you and I, let's give ourselves to saying, God, we want to serve the purpose of God in our generation. And that was the testimony of Scripture about David. He was faithful to God, and he served the purpose of God in his generation. So let's go to the beginning of the story. And so we go right back in the Bible to uh, 1 Samuel 16. And uh, you may not have this on the slide, but uh, in the first verse, the heading is Samuel anoints uh, David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king? Over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so we'll look at that why God rejected Saul as king. But God is saying to Samuel, it's time to move on. I've chosen someone, a new man, to be king over Israel. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He calls the elders of Bethlehem. They meet him. He said, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Come and join me at the sacrifice. And I want Jesse to come, and Jesse is to bring his sons, and they're to join us at the sacrifice. I believe there would have been a, a feast together. And, and so they come, and then the moment comes for Jesse to present his sons. And, of course, he calls the eldest first, Eliab. 
and, uh, and he sees Eliab, and he thinks, what a good-looking young man, strong, tall, you know, and he thinks, surely this must be the man, and God says, he's not the one, and so Samuel is a little bit perplexed, and then he calls the next one, and God says, it's not him either, and you probably know the story, one by one, the sons of uh, Jesse come before, and seven sons come before Samuel, and God says, it's none of them, and Samuel is a little perplexed, and he says, do you have any more sons? And, uh, and, and Jesse says, oh yes, there's, there's the little one. Maybe if he was Indian, they would have called him Chotu. <laughs> the little guy, Chotu. Oh yeah, he's out in the fields looking after the sheep. We don't normally include him in these things. Samuel says, we're not going to begin until he's here. Call him. And so they send for David. And then we do have this, I think, on the slide. Verse 12. They call for David. Verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought him. He was glowing with health. And had a, a fine appearance and handsome features. I think David, it says he had handsome features. I picture him with rosy cheeks. He's been out in the fields. He's a strong, healthy-looking guy. Probably had a nice mop of curly hair. But he was a, an attractive figure. And uh, verse 13 says, verse 12, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. See, God said to him, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God looked at the heart of all those sons and and David was the one he chose. And the question comes to my mind, why did God choose David? Why David and not Eliab or one of the other brothers? Why did God choose David? Well, the chapter goes on, and the next little section is um, David in Saul's service. So what happens is, I'll just read verse 18. It says, The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So Saul is there in the palace, and he's He's, he's struggling, and he's not feeling well, and he's depressed. And so the servants say, listen, find a guy who can play the harp really well, a good musician, sings, bring him in, and then when he plays the harp, that uh, you'll feel better. And Saul says, good idea. Go and find me a guy like that. And one of the servants who's standing there, verse 18, it says, one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem. This is now back uh, in the palace. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre or the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and he's a fine-looking man and the Lord is with him. What an attractive person this is and what a testimony of one man about another. You know, it's not what you say about yourself that counts. It's what other people say about you. And this is the testimony of one of Saul's servants about David, that he's, a, he's courageous, he's a warrior, he speaks well, and he's a fine-looking man. Why did God choose David? Now, I find uh, we, know he's, we know he was a man of courage, he was a man full of faith. He was a great worshiper. He was a man who loved God. But Scripture gives us this reason. Again, we're in the book of Acts, the New Testament, Acts 13, verse 22. Why did God choose David out of all those brothers? In fact, out of the whole nation, David is the one he chose. Again, it's Paul preaching in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 22. Paul says this, After removing Saul... He, God, so Acts 13, 22, God made David their king. God testified concerning him. Now we're going to hear the testimony of God. What does God say about this man, David? And this is what really counts. He says, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now that's an expression in English. Sometimes we meet somebody who likes what you like. Maybe you love pizza and you meet another guy who loves pizza. So, oh, this is a man after my own heart. You know, we speak the same language. Or you both like classical music or whatever it is. Oh, a man after my, my own heart. means you like the same things. And I believe that David loved what God loved, and he hated what God hated. 
I think that's the key. He loved what God loved, and he hated what God hated. And then this is what God says. He's a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. God says he will do everything I want him to do. And so he was a, David was this courageous man. He was full of faith. He was a worshiper. He, he could prophesy. He was, but the thing that God chose him for was not his gifts and his talents, but that he would be a man who would fully obey God. And I wonder in our own lives if God looks at us, are we those of whom God will say, this man and this woman will do everything I want them to do. And that is why God chose David. So it's an incredible commendation from God. That's why God chose him. But that chapter begins with God saying to, um, to Samuel, go and anoint David because I've rejected Saul. Let's go back one chapter in the Bible, 1 Samuel 15, and just why was it that God rejected Saul? Many of you will know the story, but... Um, Let's look at just verse 1, 2, and 3. I'll read it to you. Samuel said to Saul, this is one chapter earlier, Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So during the days of Moses, when they, Moses led them out of Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land, and without any provocation, for, for no reason at all, the Amalekites had come and attacked the people of God. And, and God says, today, the time has come for their judgment. Verse 3, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. God is the Lord. He is the God of all history. And when it's right in his eyes to bring a judgment, then God is right to do that. And so that's what God wants. And so Saul goes and he gathers the army and they go up against the Amalekites and they have a great victory and um, they destroy the army, they destroy the Amalekites, but they spare the life of the Amalekite king. And also they bring back with them, if you know the story, the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle. And then Samuel comes along and uh, it's interesting what, what uh, if you read it, Saul says to him, Something to the equivalent of today, praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, God is good. Here I am and I've obeyed God. And then Samuel says, well, what is the sound of bleating that I hear? Because he says, I've come, I've done everything God told me to do. And Samuel says, what is the sound of bleating that I hear? And he says, oh, that. Oh, <laughs> well, the soldiers and I decided to keep some of the animals and we're going to offer them to God as a sacrifice. We'd keep them. And then David, Samuel responds with this verse, chapter, same chapter 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And I think that's really at the heart of what I want to share with you today. God says to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And so this was a very serious thing. You see, Saul thought that his partial obedience to God would be okay, but that's not how it is. Because when somebody partially obeys you, actually they disobey you. If you have children in your home and you say to your, your child, okay, I want you to take your dirty clothes and you take them to the bathroom and you put them in the washing basket if you have something like that. 
and the child takes off the clothes or something, and they just go into the bathroom and drop them on the floor. But they don't put them in the washing basket. Have they obeyed, mom or dad? Not really. They've, gone, they've done half, but they haven't done it. But with God, we are to fully obey everything that God says. And so because of Saul's disobedience, he was rejected by God, and uh, they brought the king of the Amalekites, and Samuel himself put to death the king of, of the Amalekites, which is what Saul should have done. And um, so it, very important that Saul was rejected as king for his disobedience. I don't believe that he was rejected as a person. I believe that we will see Saul in heaven. Uh, I agree with Michael Eden on that point. I think he's right. I think Saul will be in heaven, but his disobedience came at a terrible price. He lost the call of God. He lost that which God had given him to do. And his life goes from bad to worse, if you know the story. And he ends up committing suicide on the battlefield. And so there can be a terrible price if we will harden our hearts and be arrogant. I think the root behind this is arrogance when we refuse to obey God. Really, what the role of the king was to carry out the will of God, was to carry out the instructions of God. And so... Saul disobeyed God. And so, you know, sometimes, I think sometimes we think, well, I think sometimes people compromise on obedience and think, well, I pray a lot. You know, I'm there in the worship service. I pray, I'll do this, I'll do that. And that's all good. But, you know, worship or prayer cannot take the place of obedience in our lives. If there's an issue of obedience, no amount of prayer, no amount of testifying, no amount of giving money to the poor, nothing will take the place of obedience. And so... So Saul was rejected, and God chose David because God said he will do everything that I have called him to do. So I want to move on to uh, the story of David. He was anointed in chapter 16. You will know very, very soon after that he, he comes up against Goliath. God uses him to deliver the people of Israel from the enemies. He delivers them. Uh, Goliath is killed. There's a great victory. And David is a great deliverer. He's setting people free from oppression and from the enemies. And um, at first, everybody loves him. Everyone's so pleased. Saul takes him into the palace. But it's not very long, and Saul begins to be jealous of David. And out of that jealousy and out of that insecurity, there's an anger. And uh, not too long afterwards, Saul is trying to kill David. And although David is married to Saul's daughter, Michal, Saul sends people to take his life, to kill David. And David is let out through a window in the middle of the night, and he's running for his life. And then Saul is, calls up the army, and they're after him. And, and David, from being in the palace, suddenly finds himself living in a dark cave, the cave of Adullam. Imagine that. He was living in the palace. Everybody loved him. He had the favor of all the people. And suddenly he's in a cave, and he must be saying, God, what's happening? I'm living in a cave, the cave of Adullam. You know, God was allowing trouble to come to shape his life, to shape his character, to teach David to depend on God, to walk humbly with God. I think God was determined not to have another Saul. Because what happened with Saul, Saul began to think too much of himself. Samuel says, you were once small in your own eyes, but now you've disobeyed God. If you read that passage, it said, where's Saul? He's gone to Carmel to build a monument to himself. So what had happened in Saul's life, pride had begun to rise, and he, although he was once small in his own, own eyes, he became proud. And I think God has determined this is not going to happen with David. And he allows these hardships so that David will walk in humility, he will learn to trust in God, 
And you see it all through the season of trouble. He makes some bad mistakes. I mean, he goes to the, to, he goes to the Philistines, king of Gath, uh, the Philistines, and he's, he's got the sword of Goliath with him. He makes some mistakes, but God delivers him uh, out of that place. But David does learn this lesson. And as you read those chapters, you'll see, and David inquired of the Lord. He says, David, shall I go up against the Philistines? And God says, yes, or God says, no. Shall I go up? And he begins to live a life of dependence on God. And I think that's what humility is. Humility says, I'm going to depend on God because I need him. And uh, David learns to do that. And so God is working in his life, shaping his character. He's learning to forgive his enemies. Do you remember the story where he could have killed Saul? He cuts off a corner of his garment. And everyone's saying, this is the moment. This is where you get rid of your enemy. And David says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. And he learns to walk in forgiveness and humility and in mercy because one day he's going to be king. And God is wanting to have a king who will reign with mercy and, and with uh, compassion towards those who are oppressed. And so this season lasts for quite a long time in the life of David. But eventually Saul is killed in battle, or at least he kills himself. Saul dies, and the day comes for uh, David to be anointed as the new king. And he becomes the king, and he's king for 40 years. And during his reign... The kingdom expands. The people are delivered from their enemies, from the Philistines, and the kingdom expands. It's a wonderful period in the history of Israel. David is the greatest of the kings. And somewhere during that reign, he writes Psalm 40. And I want us to look at a few verses in Psalm 40. He gave us many wonderful psalms, didn't he? Most of us will be familiar with Psalm 23. And there are many wonderful passages. This, this man who, who I personally I uh, love the story of David. He gave us so much scripture. What a man he was. Gave us the inspired word of God, many of these wonderful psalms. So Psalm 40 is sometimes later. And this is his, really it's his testimony that he's, sh he's sharing with us. Psalm 40 verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord all those days in the cave of Adullam. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. Who's the rock? Jesus is our rock, isn't he? God wants to put our feet upon the rock, and Jesus is our rock. He says, he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. I wonder if there are people here today, you may be listening to me, and you might be thinking, you know what, I'm in a pit. Have you ever been in that place where you feel as though you're in a pit or you're living in a cave? I can remember a time in my life uh, we hadn't been in India that long, and we were up in Dehradun uh, many years back, and I felt that I was in the cave of Adullam. <laughs> I felt far from home, far from my friends, in the cave of Adullam, and calling out to God. I, I, so I, I think I know what it's like to be in the cave of Adullam. And you may be feeling that you're in a pit today, but David says, wait patiently for the Lord. Call on God. If you will just trust in God and be patient, God will lift you up out of that pit. He wants to rescue you and put your feet upon a rock. And that was David's testimony. It can be our testimony too. He wants to put a new song in our mouth. And today we had a wonderful time of worship. God's put a song in our hearts because for many of us that's true. He's lifted us up out of the mire and the clay. He's put our feet on the rock. And so a wonderful psalm where David is just celebrating the goodness of God. He knows what it's like to be in, you know, in that place, um, the miry clay. And he's just celebrating the, the salvation of God. And then I want to skip a few verses and go on to verse 6 in Psalm 40. And here he says this, 
David writes, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, depending on how well you know your Bible, and especially your, your New Testament, you read that passage, and immediately, where does your mind go? If you know the, re, the New Testament very well, where do you go? You go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, and these verses are applied to the Lord Jesus, which is absolutely right, and we, I want to end there. But I think before we go to these verses being applied to, to, to Jesus, and they do, but I believe they also apply to David, because David is writing the psalm, and I, I believe they're true in his life. So let's have a look at that for a moment. So David is saying, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. He knew what Saul did not know. God's not looking for sacrifices. He's not looking for sheep and goats. God is looking for someone whose ears are open to the voice of God and is ready and wanting to obey God. All right, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. The Hebrew actually says you have dug. If you read the Hebrew, it's, it's my ears you have dug. You've opened my ears. You've pierced my ears or opened my ears to hear God. And David understands that God is not really looking for offerings. In the New Testament, Jesus says a number of times to people, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God is not looking for our kind of our good works or our efforts or our sacrifice. God, God, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. God is looking for a heart of love and mercy. That's what God is wanting. And so David, out of his love for God, because God has rescued him, God has saved him, taken him out of that pit. Da David, is, he says, God, my response is, here I am. I've, I want to live for you. You've, you've been so good to me. It's a, it's a response of his love to God. All right. And this reminds me, when David says, God has opened my ears, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says this, the sovereign Lord, Isaiah 50, verse 4, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And so Isaiah gives us this picture of someone who's listening to God in order that he may have something to give. Because the next verse, verse 5, says the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. God has done this for me. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. In other words, God wants us to have ears that are open to hear the word of God, and when we hear the word, to obey. I often pray this prayer. I say, Father, please give me eyes to see and ears to hear. I think it's a good prayer to pray. God, would you give me eyes to see and give me ears to hear? And it is amazing. God will hear that prayer. God will open our ears, and we'll begin to hear things from the Spirit. We'll begin to see things that perhaps other people aren't seeing, but God wants to show us. Father, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Back to verse 7. David says, Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. Now, there is a footnote in the uh, NIV Bible which says this. It's an alternative translation to that verse. If you, look, if you have an NIV at the bottom, it'll say this. Then I said, Here I am. I have come with the scroll written for me. You see, the Hebrew language is not a very difficult language to learn. It's, it's, a, it's a relatively simple language. But sometimes you can know what the words mean, 
But it is, it is in some ways an obscure language. You can understand each word, but to interpret it, because it's idiomatic, it's not always that easy to know exactly how to interpret it. So it could be, that verse, I know it's not normally, but it could be translated like this. Here I am, I have come with a scroll written for me. And I just want to explore that idea for a moment, because it is a valid translation. So the NIV Study Bible, which is a, a study Bible that I use and I enjoy using, Study Bible, NIV says this. Talking about this verse, he says this probably refers to David's commitment to the Lord at the time of his enthronement. So at the time, after many years, when David is finally going to become king, this is what this verse is about. And then the study Bible says this, the context strongly suggests that the scroll refers to the personal copy of the law that the king is to take at the time of his enthronement. So it's David saying, here I am, I have come with the scroll written for me. So in the book of Deuteronomy, many years before, Deuteronomy chapter 17, it's the time of Moses. They're still in the desert. It's before they go into the promised land. And Moses is talking about the future. And he says, when you go into Canaan, when you possess the land God is going to give you, it's Moses back in the desert. He says, and when you ask God for a king, be sure that the king that you have, he must be an Israelite. And so Moses is beginning to prophesy about the future and about when they will one day have a king. So this is sometime earlier. It's about 300 years earlier. And, he, and Moses has got certain instructions. This king must not accumulate a lot of horses and a lot of wealth. This king should not take many wives. And I wish that Solomon had remembered that verse in the book of Deuteronomy. And he also says this about this king, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. Moses says this. He says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law the law of God, the book of Deuteronomy. He is, to take, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. And it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And so Moses is saying, when, you have a new, when he becomes king, he's got to have a copy of the law, and he's got to be king He's got to rule according to the word of God. And not only must he have the scroll, but Moses says he's got to read the scroll and he's got to lead the people under God's authority and according to the word of God. The king is not, he's not above the word of God. He is submitted to God's word and he's leading under God's authority. And so Moses says he's to have this copy of the scroll, the book of Deuteronomy or the, the book of Moses. He's to have it with him and he is to read it. And so that's what they did. When, when, when somebody became king, there were, there were other things that happened, but one of the things is somebody had copied and gave him a copy of, of the law. So you see this happening in the book of uh, Kings. Uh, just a very quick example. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 12. I'm not going to describe the whole context, but you'll see the king getting his own copy of the word of God. So verse 12, 2 Kings 11, verse 12. Jehoiada, who was the priest brought out the king's son. He was a young boy. He brought him out and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant, and he proclaimed him king. They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king. The point of that verse is that when this young boy was being set aside and crowned as king, he was given a copy of the law. All right, so that's what I'm saying. He was given the scroll. And so I think when David says, Here am I, 
I have come with a scroll written for me. It could be translated differently. I understand it, but I think it could be done this way. He's saying, here I am with a scroll given to me. And the next thing he says, I desire to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. So he's got the scroll, but it's more than that. He says, I've got the scroll, but the law of God, the word of God is in my heart. You know, we may have a Bible next to the bed or on the shelf, but it's not going to do you much good until it's in your mind, and then it's got to be in our hearts. And so David says, I've got the scroll, but the law of God is here. God wants us to receive his word, to love it, to read it, to meditate on it, and for that word to be in our hearts, and we live out of the richness of the word of God in our hearts. So David had a scroll. What have you got? What have you got? Well, maybe you've got, a, you've got something too, something written for you. I used to say to the church, you know what? The Word of God, the New Testament, the Bible, it's not for the angels. That wasn't, that's, this is for us. God has given us His Word. This is written for you and for me. Who was it? I think it was um, Tyndale, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English. He was martyred for translating the, the Bible into a language that we can read. Martyred for that. This Word of God has come to us at a great cost, and it's for us. It's for us to read and to treasure, and God wants to speak to us. Our God is all about having a relationship with us. It's not about religion or rules and regulations. It's about God and His Word and a living according to this Word. And God, through the Word of God, will speak to our hearts. And so David had a scroll. What have you got? You and I have got a Bible. We've got the New Testament. We've got the whole of the Word of God. And let, let's get this Word into our hearts. I had the opportunity of speaking to a group of students the other day in Varanasi. It's a kind of a northeast fellowship. And I felt God really lay this on my heart that, you know what, there's a certain amount that as a preacher you can share on a Sunday morning. There's a certain amount, and I'm doing my best this morning. But there is so much of the Word of God that you will never get if you only rely on the preaching on a Sunday morning or Tuesday night. But there is so much you'll never get it. You've got to take this Word of God You've got to feed on it day by day, and God is going to speak to you the way that he spoke to David when he said, you know what, when, you, when somebody reigns in righteousness in the fear of God, he had a word from God that shaped his whole life. It shaped his ministry. It, it, he was successful as a king, and you and I need to feed on the word of God. We've got to read this for ourselves. Many of us can read. If you can't read, I understand, but many of us can read. This is the word of God. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on Every word, and it's every word, not one to be ignored, not one word to be dismissed. No, we're to believe every word. We're to obey every word of God. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, or by rice alone, or by chapatis alone, or by, if you're from Africa, by maize alone. We live on the word of God. And so God wants us to live by that word, to have the word of God in our heart. And then we say like David, Lord, you've saved me. You've been so good to me. Here I am. I've come to do your will. I want to be one of those who says, God, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. David has come and he's gone. Served God faithfully. This is our day. Here we are, 2017, in Bangalore, in India. This is our day to serve the purpose of God in our generation. And God has given us all we need to do that. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us wonderful friends. He's given us a wonderful church. And let's say to God, Lord, here am I. I come. I've got a scroll written for me, and your law is within my heart. I want to serve you. I, I give myself to you. That's what I want to exhort you with today. 
But of course, this psalm does have an application to Jesus, and I want to go there now. So it's in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in the NIV, I have a little heading, Christ's sacrifice once for all, and it's a wonderful theme. So in verse 1 of chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, the law, the Old Testament laws and regulations, all of it, the, the law of Moses, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. All those sacrifices in the book of Leviticus or the book of Exodus or the book of uh, Deuteronomy, all of those sacrifices are pointing forward to one great final sacrifice. They're just a shadow of the one sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. So he says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming in Christ, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. They can't do it. Those sacrifices cannot make us perfect. So the law or sacrifices or good works or religion cannot make us perfect before God. Things we, sometimes people try and offer their, their good works or, you know, go to the temple or go and do Ganga Snan, go for a dip in the Ganges River, whatever. Good works and our offerings to God will never make us perfect. Using another translation, the, it, it was the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was speaking from. And, and the Septuagint was very popular during the days of the New Testament, but it was a fairly free translation. It was sometimes there was a little bit of exposition. It's a little bit like the New Living Bible or one of those. It's not, a, it's, it's not always a word-for-word -word translation, but it, it was accepted as the Word of God. So it's a little bit different from the Hebrew. But this is what it says. So verse 5 in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Jesus speaking now, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body, a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, verse 6, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. So ultimately, this verse is all about Jesus. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. You know what? The whole of the Old Testament is pointing to this one person, the Lord Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament is all Read the, read the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Christ. All of it, pointing us towards Jesus. And then he says, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. You know what, David did his best, but he made some mistakes. You remember the story with Bathsheba. And there were some other mistakes that David made. He, he really, he had a heart after God. He was a lover of God, but he made some mistakes. You and I might say, I want to serve the purpose of God. In my generation, I, yes, but you and I will make mistakes too. And we will sin, and we will fail God, even though we want to serve him. But Jesus could say, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I've come to do your will, and he, is, he was perfect, he was without sin. So verse 8 says, first, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law of Moses, Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. Then the writer of the Hebrews says this, he sets aside the first, the old covenant, he sets aside the first to establish the second. And now we have the big verse of the day. It is such a powerful verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Easy to remember the reference. Why don't you take this word and hide it in your heart? Let this become a verse that you meditate on and memorize. It's a huge verse. 
the righteous, and by that will, by the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thank you, God. By that will, by God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's an amazing verse. You know what? We are people and we're not holy. We all of us sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How can an unholy person make themselves holy? It can't be done. An unholy person cannot make themselves holy. There's only one. The only one who can make you holy is the one who is holy, and that is God. It is Jesus who makes us holy. We can never be holy by our religion, by our church going, by anything we do, by religion, prayer. That will never make you holy. There is one way to be holy, and that is when you and I depend on what Jesus did on the cross, that there he gave, he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is no other way to be holy. And the, the land of India needs to hear that message. Up and down the nation, all along the Ganges, people need to hear. There is one way to be holy, and it is through the sacrifice of Jesus, the sinless one who gave himself for us upon the cross. I love this cross. I think it's just great. What a, that's just inspiring. Down at the bottom, washed clean, because Jesus said, I have come to do your will, God. And then there's a verse a little bit later. Let me just see if it's in my, in my notes. Hebrews chapter 10, and I think it's verse 14, which I want to read. Same chapter, Hebrews 10, verse 14. Then he says, because by one sacrifice, Hebrews 10, verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he has made perfect forever. I wish, uh, is that real for you today? Perfect forever in the eyes of God. When God looks at you, how does he see you? Perfect forever through the cross. Perfect forever those who are being made holy. So holiness really begins at the cross. When Jesus takes all our sin, puts it on the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then out of gratitude to God, we say, God, I want to live for you. And that's God taking us, and it's Jesus or the Holy Spirit making us holy. So holiness comes as we understand the gospel. We depend on what Jesus did, and then we begin to live for God. Somebody said repentance, repentance is taking on God's agenda. And I like that. Repentance is when we say, okay, I'm no longer living for myself. I'm no longer doing my own thing. God, what's your agenda? What do you want? That's what, really what repentance is. God, I want to live for your purposes in my generation. And then just, and I'm closing with this last verse. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 uh, just came to me during the worship. Just love this verse. Hebrews 2 verse 11. It says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Both the one who makes men holy. Who's that? That's Jesus. The one who makes us holy, the Holy One. He makes us holy. And those who are made holy, who's that? That's us. We're of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to say, my sister, my brother, my sister, my brother. We're of the same family and God makes us holy. So I want to just invite you today. It may be that you have thought that holiness is something you have to do. You may have thought that you can be holy through prayer or through, you know, uh, being a good church member or, or just trying to leave a, uh, live a clean life. 
Those are not bad things, but you will never be holy through, through that. The only way to be holy, it starts with saying Jesus came and he was the final sacrifice once for all time. He died to take away all our sin, and when we believe on that cross, Jesus declares us to be holy forever. All our sins forgiven, past, present, future, all of them. And so we are sure we're going to heaven. We're going to heaven based on the holiness of Jesus, not our own righteousness. And then having believed on the cross, we say, Lord, I'm just going to cooperate with you. Holy Spirit, just want to cooperate with you. Just want to live for you, Lord. And that's how the Holy Spirit then begins to work in our lives. If there is someone today and you would like to depend on what God did for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross, you want to depend today on this sacrifice of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You say, God, it's the only way I can be holy. I can never be holy through my prayer life, through my devotion to Scripture, through anything I do, but I will depend on the cross to set me free. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com. 